passage today is Galatians 4. I believe we're in week 8 of our 13-week Galatians series. Today it'll be Galatians 4. We'll be in verses 8 through 20. Again, we called the, the series the gospel for life because typically when the church thinks about the gospel, we think of it as being what? Well, the message of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our salvation. We receive that. We trust in the Lord. We repent of our sins. We are saved. And then we never have to think about that gospel word again, except for the fact that all through scripture, we see the good news of Jesus informing every word of it. And so what Galatians has been pointing out to us is that our faith needs to be immersed in the gospel, in the totality of the gospel. In other words, if you and I believe what is true about the gospel, if we believe that that Christ died, was buried, and he rose again, if we believe in that truth, and that's going to affect literally everything we do. So it's not just a one-time shot for salvation, but it's this ongoing truth that is working to transform our hearts and literally cover like every nuance of our life. And so uh, if you're with us for the first time, a little bit of a recap, what, what Paul has been driving at in this letter to the church in Galatia is that they were, uh, they were screwing up the gospel. They had received it from Paul. They had received the truth, which is the essential truth of the gospel, that justification is by faith alone. In other words, to be declared, to be declared righteous, to have any standing with God whatsoever, It can't be anything that we have done because we ain't got anything in us to get it done. It has to be a work exclusively of Jesus Christ alone of whom we put our faith into to be our righteousness. And in that way, God looks down at us and he sees Jesus and he declares us righteous before him. That's it. That's the gospel in a nutshell. It's wider than that, but if it's not that, it's not the gospel. And that's what Paul is trying to drive uh, the point home to the Galatians over. He says, look, you guys have forgotten this. You guys are starting to adopt Jewish laws and rituals. People rose up in the congregations. They said, look, that gospel thing, true enough, but you got to add to it. You also got to keep some of these Jewish laws. You got to become circumcised. And Paul is reminding the Galatian church, he says, no, you are actually sons and you are heirs of the promise of God, the very promise that God gave Abraham, who, by the way, wasn't justified by keeping any laws because God justified him by faith before there were any laws in place. And so now we see the Galatian church has drifted. They've deserted the authentic gospel for a distorted one. And not only that, and as we're going to see uh, this morning, is that they are now viewing Paul as their enemy because he really, his desire is to lead them back to the truth. And so in today's passage, we're going to see Paul lamenting over the Galatians. He's perplexed over what is happening to them. And if his words have seemed harsh, which they haven't been at all, um, it's because the situation is serious. And it's a situation that we have to take serious as we're learning from the text ourselves. And yet today we'll see that Paul wasn't harsh, hasn't been being harsh at all, but yet he's being tender. And we'll see the tenderness of Paul's heart and hopefully gain an understanding that it's not enough to simply tell somebody the truth. Paul's not simply telling the Galatians the truth here because truth without love is ultimately untruthful because that's not how God saves the people that he loves, right? It was because of God's love for us that he gave his son who is the truth and the life. So the truthiest gospel 
truth is always saturated in gospel love. So then that begs the question, what is gospel love? How do we define gospel love? Well, here's how I'm going to define it. There's probably a thousand other definitions we can give for it. Here's mine. A compassionate and gentle affection for others that delights in truth while daring to communicate truth with the humble heart of Jesus. That's how we're going to define and run with when we think of gospel love this morning. What's important to understand when speaking gospel truth and gospel love is this, okay? The approach is as important as the landing, all right? The approach, our approach to communicating gospel truth is as important as the gospel truth that we land on, right? So I, I recently was on a flight, and like all flights that are good flights, we eventually landed, you know? Um, but here was the problem. Like, man, I don't know what was going on in the front. I, I'm glad when I don't know what's going on in the front. And, uh, and, and the weather wasn't incredibly bad, or at least it didn't appear to be. But that thing was like choppy as we're like coming down to the landing. And when we landed, I felt ill. You know, how, it, it, was, it was a polite way to say it, right? But here's the interesting thing about after I landed. It made me never want to get on a plane with that pilot ever again right? So in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, he reminds them, and here's my point, that words without love, truth without love, knowledge without love, understanding without love, it gains nothing. It's landing on something of which the approach made it almost unlandable, if that's a way to put it. And so we're going to see how the kind of gospel love Paul shows the Galatians It calls them back to something. It calls them back to something, and it shows us that the way we approach people with gospel love is as important as the gospel truth that we land on, and here's what we're gonna be called back to. We're gonna be called back to what we know, we're gonna be called back to who we are, and then we're gonna see that gospel love calls us back to who we are to love like. All right, so let's pick up verse eight in chapter four. This is what it says. Formerly, when you did not know God, Paul says, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. And verse 12 says, brothers, I entreat you, Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. And look, you did me no wrong, he says. You, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth till Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. That's God's word. We're going to 
stop right there for the morning. So what we're going to see here this morning is that Paul shows a particular kind of love out of his concern for the Galatians, and it's what we would call a gospel love. And this is what we're going to learn. Our first point is that a gospel love, it calls us back to what we know and who we are. Paul is in anguish over the Galatians right now. It says, I'm in anguish over you. He compares it in verse 19 to the pain of childbirth as all the mothers in the room are saying it's not the same thing, Paul, right? I understand, right? But anybody understands this, right? With a friend or with a family member or a child, anybody that, that has a close acquaintance of somebody in the faith can understand and relate to what Paul is saying. Because wherever there's a deep love for a person, there will naturally be a deep pain when truth has been drifted from or it's been abandoned altogether. So Paul is lamenting over this people that he loves and who, by the way, loved him. So what we understand here from the beginning is that lamentation is, is good and it's right when it flows from the kind of heart of gospel love that Paul is sharing with the Galatian church right now in his letter. In fact, Jesus himself expresses this kind of lament, this kind of grief over the drifting of his people um, in Matthew 23 when he cries out. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He says, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He says, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing that, that wasn't a harsh statement by Jesus. That was a lament spoken about the people of Jesus that would not receive his words. He did it out of love. Now, it should go without saying, but I am not Jesus, right? And thankfully, there's never been any confusion over that around here, so thank you for that. And yet, you should all know that I am constantly in prayerful anxiety over the health of Substance Church. You guys should know that. Because I love this church deeply. I love you deeply. So there is an anguish that I can relate to here with Paul. There are questions that I ask. I ask questions like, what are we being enslaved to? I ask questions like, are we turning back to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? So I labor in prayer over you. I labor in prayer over substance because I know that there is no church that resembles a sitcom from the 1950s, right? And yet a church environment can be incredibly deceptive. That's what Paul's pointing out. That's what's happening here. That's one of the undergirding elements of what's happening to the church in Galatia. There's still a church. They're still doing churchy things. If somebody walks in from the outside, they're going to be like, yeah, we're gathering, man. I like the new stage design. I wish you wouldn't have fooled me with like these things because I thought you had screens and now there really isn't any screens and we're still holding up like our bulletin to read the lyric. I mean, so like they're, they're, they're going through the same things you guys are going through this morning, but there's been a drift. There's been a change, right? Because a church environment can be incredibly deceptive. Well, how? Well, because in the words of Don Carson, he says this, people do not drift toward holiness. He said, apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. 
So what he's saying there, what, what Carson is saying is, it doesn't just happen by magic. It doesn't just happen automatically. It doesn't just happen because we decide to come and sit in these lavishly comfortable chairs every Sunday, right? It doesn't just happen like that. And number two, this is how it happens. Because in church, there's opportunities for religion everywhere, all right? It's kind of like that playground that you take your kids to, right? All those beautiful swings and slides and all those germs, all those germs, man. It's like a quarantined area. Every time you pull air, you guys are like, why are you ruining, why are you ruining, the, ruining the playground at Freer for me right now, Ronnie? I don't know. I just don't want it to be ruined for me right now. Um, but religion is like germs. That's what it's like. So listen, we, we have all these good things at, at substance. I, mean, I think we do. Uh, we pray to God. We're doing it this morning. We open God's word to hear his voice. We sing songs of, of adoration and lament. We take multiple opportunities to serve one another, to engage in community. What could go wrong, right? Kind of a lot, actually, a lot. We can become like the Galatians and so easily become influenced to turn back to weak and worthless religious practices, all right? Or as Paul says, elementary principles in verse 9. What, what does that mean? What are these elementary principles? Well, Paul's referring to the kind of pagan beliefs that the Galatians would have held before they embraced the gospel. Like the belief that, you know, it's spiritual forces or it's, or it's gods, small g gods, who controlled people's lives through all the earthly elements like fire, water, and air. You know, it sounds like I'm describing like the last Harry Potter novel when I talk like that. But that's kind of where some of the pagan beliefs that the Galatians would have been delivered from back in that time. This is what Tim Keller says. He says, the basic principle of the world is that we need to save ourselves. So what Keller is saying is that it actually all roots back, all religions, however spooky, however crazy they are, they really all root back to the same element, which is that we need to save ourselves. In other words, what the Galatians were doing was by trying to keep the Jewish laws, by becoming circumcised in Jewish tradition, by observing all the Jewish festivals throughout the year, like Paul points out in verse 10, it was the same as if they had returned to the pagan gods to save themselves who were not gods at all, like we read in verse eight. But you see how subtle it was for them. And it's even more subtle and insidious because they had mixed together a religious cocktail of gospel truth with Jewish practices. So what this points out to us is a warning, right? This is a warning for the church because our practices may be weak and worthless elementary principles if they're nothing more than religious versions of what we were formerly enslaved to, right? This is how the church drifts. If you've ever swam in the ocean where there's a, just a heavy tide and there's big waves, you'll walk out, you'll be all set up, you got your, you know, your towels and your books and your chairs, and you walk straight out into the ocean you're out there for 10, 15, 20 minutes, and before you know it, you're like half a mile from where you started. It's the strangest thing. You had no idea. Why? Because you're still in the water, and the water looks the same. 
and the waves are still crashing with the rhythm that they crash in. But when you look at the shore, you're lost because the anchor and the foundation that you needed to hold to wasn't there for you to keep to it, right? So how does this play out in the church then? Well, here's some of the ways it plays out, all right? I'm going to demand that this person dress according to my standards. I don't know. We don't really have that going on much here, but maybe we do, right? I don't know. I'm going to demand that this person votes for the politician or political party I determine is the right one. Am I getting warmer? I'm going to demand that this family adopt the kind of values I've decided are most holy. I mean, this just skims the surface of some of the ways the church can form religious patterns and practices. And this is what we need to hear. When the church practices religion, it is simply committing idolatry from the pews. In our case, okay, you get what I'm saying. And this is not holiness. This is not holiness. John Sartell describes holiness as this. Loving God first in my life so that in everything I do, I am loving him first. I see and I hear the world through his eyes and his ears and with his heart. So religious practices begins to form in us this idea that what we're doing is growing in holiness when in reality, the opposite thing is happening. Paul describes holiness as something quite different in Romans 12. He calls it a living sacrifice. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How do you do that, Paul? Well, he tells us right here. Do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't pull on, don't adopt religious practices that the world commits themselves to as a way to justify themselves. That's what he's saying. He said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, by remembering what you know, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Religion is the very opposite of holiness because it conforms to worldly patterns of self-love, self-righteousness, and self-justification. It's serving a God of our own making. It's saying that when we worship at the altar of our own preferred justification, we're most pleased and God is most appeased, right? The reason why this is so dangerous is because idolatry can begin with God-like practices. This is why it was so subtle for the Galatians. The Galatians weren't ditching out on justification by faith alone. They were adding to it. So when we elevate any practice above our love for God and for people, they become God-less. And you know what they produce? A culture of conformity, of fear, of exclusivity, and of lovelessness some churches to which some of you may have used to belong. By God's grace, I hope we're not that church. So what is Paul doing here? He's showing gospel love to the Galatians by calling them back to what they know. And not only what they know, but who they are. What's the principal thing for Christians to know? 
Well, Paul says it right here, that they're known by God, which is simultaneously how we know who we are, right? Now, again, this doesn't preclude us knowing God. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But what is it that shapes our input and output of knowledge? Well, it's that we are known by God. What's the evidence that we're known by God? Our love for God. 1 Corinthians 8.3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So it is this thing that works hand in hand as we gain knowledge of God and our identity and our assurance in him becomes more secure by the work of the Holy Spirit assuring us and teaching us all things. That is evidence that we are somebody who is known by God because only someone who is known by God would have the things of God revealed to them so that they know God. I'm getting a little Dr. Seuss here, but I think you guys get where I'm going with this. J.I. Packer made this comment. He said, there is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed. It's Halloween, so we're just gonna throw that word out there right now. But he says this, whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them. And that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and on forever. Isn't that a great quote? So Paul is moved. He's moved with gospel love to call the Galatians back to the truth that they are known by God because a love for God had been born in their hearts through the gospel. Paul is saying, be who you are, Galatian church. Just be who you are. In fact, he has the audacity in verse 12 to say, become as I am. So as a way of telling the Galatians how to be who they are, he's saying, here's a model for you, me. He says, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. So in reality, this is what Paul's saying, this is what happened to Paul, is he had to leave behind the restrictions the Jewish law had placed on him to be free to share the gospel to them. He's saying, look, you guys, I left it all behind to come to you. So now you're telling me you want to return to the weak and worthless things I left behind? And you see the logic that he's presenting to them? And what this reminds us of is that the Christian faith is a continuous callback. Every time you show up on Sunday, do you realize you're being called back to something? You're being called back to some truths that you forgot. You're being called back to truths that need to be reinstated and reformatted in your heart. And that's what the Christian faith is. It's a continuous call to come back to who you are and to be who you've been set free to be. I'm not trying to sound like an Avion commercial here, right? I mean, listen, if Paul had merely called the Galatians back to what they knew and not to who they'd become, then he ultimately would have been saying that obedience and holiness means nothing. Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, be imitators of me, what, just because, what, he thought he was cool? <laughs> you know what I mean? No, he said, be imitators of me as I am in Christ. So to imitate Paul was to imitate the Christ that was in Paul. This is not Paul's ego running away from him. This is a call to Christ-likeness. Because when we use the word becoming, it implies not merely information, 
but it implies transformation, right? Now, I don't remember whose idea it was, so I'm just going to say it was my wife's. Um, so three years ago, Melissa and I, we bought cross-country skis. Um, I mean, I do, we like bought all the stuff. It was August. Um, dropping all this money in the summer for, for snow gear. It was super fun. Um, it was embarrassing, actually, if I'm being honest. Um, so the first winter that, that came with all of, our, all of our ski gear, my wife's salivating. She was so excited. Uh, we took some lessons, and those were super embarrassing, too. And they were super painful, by the way. Um, but even more embarrassing is that three years later, because we've had some light winters and because I hate cross-country skiing, uh, we have, we've never skied again, all right? Here's my point. Um, that we never became skiers. I, I can't look at my wife right now. We never became skiers. We have the gear, we have the gear, man. Right, we took the lessons, we learned some techniques, sure. Um, we know what cross-country skiing looks like, but we never became cross-country skiers. Paul is pleading with the Galatians to become like him, to be who they are, to pursue Christ-likeness, to reject religious practices, to stop committing idolatry from the pews, to come back to what they know that they are known by God and who they are, which is sons and heirs, according to promise, like Scott pointed out last week, which, by the way, he absolutely crushed. So that is the pleadingness of Paul. That is the gospel love that Paul is communicating to the Galatians. Come back to what you know. Come back to who you are. And then finally, he's calling them back to who they are, to love like, okay? If we are not constantly pressing into gospel love and letting it call us back to what we know and who we are, we will not be a church characterized by genuine gospel love to one another and to others. Gospel love calls us back to who we are to love like, which is Jesus. And it's ironic because the Galatians lived this out to Paul when he first came to them as we read through verses 13 through 15. He was obviously suffering some kind of physical ailment, it says, possibly having to do with his eyes. Um, but their love for him was so great that he says they didn't scorn, they didn't despise him. In other words, like it could have been that he was really hard to be around, he was hard to look at, and it was uncomfortable with this particular ailment for them to, to actually like be in his company and reach out and take care of him. But they said that, he said, Paul says that, that wasn't the fact. He said, the fact was is that, man, you would have gouged your eyes out for me and given them to me. That's how ferocious your love and care for me was. He says they treated him as an angel. They treated him as Christ. And what this tells us is that the Galatians' vertical relationship with Jesus at that time, it dramatically affected their horizontal relationship with Paul. And that is the dimensional quality of gospel love. We are so taken in by the love of Christ, this vertical love that gets extended down to us that we can't help for that to spread horizontally to others, first in our church, then in our community. What strikes me most about verses 13 through 20 is that as soon as they began to drift from the gospel, and this is important, 
as soon as they began adding religion to their atonement, as soon as they started considering the counsel of these Judaizers, these men who had risen up, their love for Paul diminished. Isn't that interesting? Paul says in verses 17 through 18, these other brothers, they, they want to build you up. And hey, building up is, a, is good. It's a good thing, but only if it's for the right purpose. So these brothers, these Judaizers, their zeal for the Galatians, man, it lacked the right motivation because they lacked the right knowledge of the gospel. And with a lack of right knowledge of the gospel, they had become the religious antithesis of the gospel. And what happened was this backed Paul into a corner because he was so fiercely committed to truth, but it was a commitment rooted in love, not religion. But what we see is that religion had hardened the hearts of the Galatians, and this is important because when we present the truth, listen, with gospel love, I need you to hear me. When we present the truth with gospel love, only the truth should be offensive. Our demeanor should have such a humble, affectionate, self-denying, Christ-exalting quality to it so that if the truth does offend, and it does many times, it won't be because we were offensive in our manner of communicating it. I mean, I cannot press this point more emphatically for us. A church without gospel love is a church that does not love the gospel and is therefore not a church. Do you see how deep this goes? Do you see how deep Paul is trying to emphasize this? Do you see what's at stake for the Galatian church? Listen, my deepest regrets in life as a believer are never because I communicated the truth with too much love and too much joy and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. It's the opposite. It's when I faithlessly communicated the truth in a harsh and an unloving manner, wanting to bully people into a place that only God could bring them. If I'm being honest, if we're being honest, many times we just want people to say, you're right. I would have been satisfied with a religious response. You're right, Ronnie. Could you shut up now? Paul says in verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? No. But if we tell truth without love, we're being worse than an enemy and profoundly untruthful. Gospel love keeps the bar of truth set at the heart level of Christ. Paul never sacrificed truth, but truth is always sacrificed where love is compromised. Our approach is as important as our landing. Listen, our aim is to be a community formed by something here. We want to be a community that's formed by humility and prayer, by serving one another with all patience, counting each other's interests more important than our own. But let me just say this. All of your theology, all of your theology that exists right now in your heart, there are parts of it that are misshaped. There are parts of it that are unformed. And that doesn't mean we don't want uniformity of belief, because we do. We do want to believe what's true about God concerning the essential truths of the gospel. Every week on the back of your bulletin, I got one right here. You see an article 
from our statement of faith. You can look at it. These are what we call essentials. These are essentials for someone claiming authentic faith in Jesus Christ because they are taken from Scripture and they are unarguable, we would say. Now, these beliefs don't speak into every nuance of our faith and practice. Some of you will come in, you will have questions. You have questions about predestination or end times or mode of baptism or Calvinism versus Arminianism. And you know what? Those questions are welcome here. Come to us with, with your questions. And don't worry, we're going to hold to a particular view concerning all of these things, right? But if these essentials are ever misunderstood or drifted from, you know what we're also going to do? We're also going to strive to graciously correct you as we would want you to graciously correct us. But that correction should never be alone. Correction should never happen outside of connection. Gospel love should precede correction in gospel truth. Otherwise, it ain't truth. What is gospel love? Again, a compassionate and gentle affection for others that delights in truth while daring to communicate truth with the humble heart of Jesus. That's what Paul was coming to the Galatians with. So here's three questions I want to end our time with as we consider these things. Number one, do you need to repent of your approach and your landing? Maybe there's a brother or a sister here in the church or maybe at your office or maybe at your school or maybe part of your regular routine and you've gotten into some of these conversations over Christianity or theology and some of these things get a little heated. They can become a little divisive. Maybe you need to go to the person that you have been a little harsh with and say, you know what? That conversation we had where I got a little angry, I got a little upset because you just didn't adopt everything I had to say wholesale. Man, I, I need to confess my sin to you and ask forgiveness from you because that was not the heart of Christ. I wanna be able to sit here, I wanna be able to dialogue with you, trusting that God is going to do a work in you, whether he does it through my words or somebody else's. So we need to look very carefully at that because there could be somebody in our lives that is keeping a distance from us because of the manner in which we communicated truth. So think about that, pray about that. Number two, do you need to acknowledge your own drift? What happens is that knowledge, the Bible tells us, it puffs us up. It makes us begin to believe things about ourselves because of the knowledge we are holding to that aren't exactly existing in our hearts, right? So man, I'm just, man, I learn more doctrine, I read my Bible, I listen to Ronnie preaching every week, I read some books, I'm just growing in my knowledge of God, awesome. I mean, that's great, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your heart is growing bigger because sometimes when your head expands, your heart shrinks. So do you need to see if any of that has surfaced in your life, if that is the kind of drift that has surfaced in your life? And then three, finally, you need to ask who needs your gospel love? Who needs your gospel love right now? Is there somebody that needs you to be tender to them. Again, we're not talking about the kind of love to alleviate your guilt, not love to appease the gods of anger. 
You need to show gospel love because gospel people are the only ones who have this unique love. If you've been saved by Jesus Christ, you have a love that is totally and completely and utterly unique to the love of the world. You have this alien ability to love without expectation and exception. To love because your devotion to Jesus and the gospel means you want to show the truthiest kind of love that exists because this is the kind of love that Jesus shows you. So sometimes we kind of get into a little bit of a conundrum, a little bit of a pickle, and we say, well, I want to speak the truth. I want to speak it in love. Like, honestly, Ronnie, I hear what you're saying. That is my aim. How do I do that? Read the Bible. Go back and see how Jesus communicated truth. Go back to the story of Jesus with the woman at the well, just the sensitivity and the tenderness that he used as he spoke to a woman that would have put his reputation on the line, that would have been a disaster in terms of societal standards of that time. Look at the way Jesus deals with Peter after Peter had denied him three times. Peter's standing on the shore cooking Peter breakfast while Peter's in a boat thinking that all these things from the last three years that he learned with Jesus were for nothing and that he's gonna go back to being a fisherman and Jesus calls him back to the shore and he deals with him tenderly. He feeds him. He listens to him. He encourages him. Our model is Jesus because how you came to know the grace and truth of Christ was not through harsh words, but it was through the comforting words of Jesus that said, come to me. Brother, sister, you're heavy laden. Come to me because I'm gonna give you rest. Come to me because I am the one that can be your very life. So that's what we do. We see the way that Christ dealt with us and we say, God, help me be like Christ. And then we become a church that not only stands just vigorously for right truth, good doctrine, strong traditional orthodoxy, but we do it with a love that brings people in out of the darkness of the world into what should be the most beautiful thing that anybody would want to enter. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for showing gospel love to us by sending Jesus. Thank you that our sin is very harsh. But Lord, you did not return the harshness of our sin with your wrath, but you sent Jesus so that we wouldn't have to bear your wrath. And so Lord, we understand that there's a lot at stake when we are sharing the gospel. There's a lot at stake for us who have believed the gospel and who are trying to live a gospel life. We understand that there is a, a lot at stake and so we don't use love as a way to soften the truth. When we talk about love, we speak of it in a way that makes the truth be what it is that you call it 
which is Christ crucified for sinners such as us so that someday we could have peace with you. And Lord, that's beautiful and that's gentle and that's inviting. And I pray that we would invite one another into this as well, God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.